Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information that you need to know. Hate to break it to everyone, but summer is over. It's September, and here in D.C., that means that policymakers start coming back to a pretty busy September. But with all of the vacations, either virtual or otherwise, some might be wondering, what did I miss? The sun comes up and the world still spins, and so we're going to catch you up in this episode on some of the things that happened in foreign policy that you might have missed over the summer. We'll touch base with a few of our experts, some of whom you've heard before, some of whom are new to us on the show. So we're looking forward to catching everyone up on what you might have missed over August and the summer. We're going to start the show with Marissa Kerma, who is the Middle East Program Director at the Wilson Center. We just had her on to talk about Lebanon, but we want to check in with her about what's going on with this United Arab Emirates-Israel deal that recently broke. And what does this mean for United States relations in the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates relations with Israel, and the broader politics of the Middle East? So, Marissa, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Aaron. Um, so, so this was definitely a surprise announcement um, of a U.S. brokered deal to normalize relations between the United Arab Emirates um, and Israel, uh, also known as the Abraham Accords. So uh, this is definitely an historic deal, um, given that the Arab-Israeli conflict and Arab-Israeli relations have defined the Middle East and North Africa region, particularly the you know the Arab world for for decades. Um, it it was surprising in the sense that um, the 22 Arab countries of the Arab League had signed up earlier in 2002 to a Saudi-led initiative called the Arab Peace Initiative, um, and so this was sort of outside of the uh, Arab uh, Arab Peace Initiative. And it was the first time that a that a country um, uh, in the Arab region basically um, goes outside of that since the Arab Peace Initiative was agreed on in uh, in Beirut in 2002. Um, it is also historic because it establishes, uh, you know, normalizing relations or peaceful relations and official diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE, uh, commercial relations as well, um, and the, you know, the, the exchange, both cultural, technological, and, and, and um, economic. So it is definitely um, a significant shift in the region. Um, reactions uh, across the region vary. Of course, there was um, vociferous criticism and a rejection of the deal by the Palestinian Authority and by the vast majority of the Palestinian people, social media was basically um, full of um, comments that were very critical of the UAE for taking such a step because they saw this as a betrayal of um, Palestinian rights um, and agreed upon uh, uh, agreements um, such as the Arab Peace Initiative that that basically uh, promised normalizing relations with Israel after the establishment of a Palestinian state uh, so the Palestinians feel like the United Arab Emirates jumped ahead of where they thought the peace deal should be going. Yes, exactly. 
Yes, exactly. So what is the relationship between the UAE and the Palestinian Authority or the Palestinians in general? Uh, what, what's, what's the relationship been like for them? That's a good question because I think there have been frustrations um, from the side of the United Arab Emirates leadership and government uh, with with the Palestinian Authority in general. So I would say they are lukewarm at this point and have been for a number of years. Uh, but I think, in, I mean, in general, uh, beyond just the relationship between the two governments, uh, I think most Palestinians uh, all across the Arab region, and, you know, there are Palestinian refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, but also Palestinian diaspora communities all across the Middle East, including the UAE, you know, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, and elsewhere. And so, but but yeah, they they definitely feel a sense of sense of betrayal that um, this this has happened, uh, and that you know Israel has you know basically been gifted this deal at the expense of uh, the Palestinians uh, who you know are still living under occupation. Um, in the West Bank uh, and and Gaza. So, does this mark a departure for for the United States from the the, the framework that everyone's been operating under all of this time? I mean, the, the President Trump's you know so called deal of the century, as it's as it's dubbed, um, was also a departure because it um, it prioritized some sort of normalization aspect, particularly with a focus on economic development, uh, including, of course, uh, injecting, um, you know, millions of dollars to economically develop uh, the Palestinian territories. So, again, that that deal was seen um, across the region, particularly in, in, you know, in the press, as well as with analysts here in Washington and those who have been working in the um, Arab-Israeli peace um, sort of sector for many years have basically announced that it would be dead on arrival. Um, but then we've seen, and the Palestinians rejected it too, um, but then we see, we see this deal being brokered behind closed doors. Uh, many expected it to happen because there were signs across the few, few past years in particular that there is now agreement um, or more some sort of rapprochement between the two countries. Um, they were joined together by um, their concerns about um, Iran and um, a nuclear Iran in particular. So, um, so I think it was not as surprising to some people that it happened, but I think the timing of it um, and the way that it was, that it was announced was, uh, was a bit surprising uh, but it certainly um, broke the tradition in 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 the way that it was done. So, for a policymaker here in the United States, why should they care that Israel and the United Arab Emirates now have this deal? Well, this definitely marks uh, a departure from the way things have been done for a long time. It certainly changes the course of how Arab-Israeli relations will be forged in the future. Um, in a way that is not directly linked to the Palestinian cause. The, uh, given the Israeli-U.S. relationship and UAE-U.S. relations as well, this certainly, 
elevates both the reputation of both the UAE, but particularly the UAE here in Washington, uh, given the prominence of U.S.-Israeli relations. Um, you know, for many, it's it's seen as an opportunity to normalize and, and do things differently. But I think that there's still a long way to go for the rest of the region, particularly because the reality on the ground has not changed. Uh, it, it, it also matters because, you know, uh, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu was under a lot of pressure uh, with protests uh, happening. Um, many were very uh, upset about how he handled uh, COVID-19 and the impact on the economy. Um, and so this came at a time and sort of provided um, provided him with some space. And so it was definitely seen as a boon for for Bibi Netanyahu. Well, thank you for the quick breakdown of this and always happy to have you on the program. Thank you, Aaron. We'll turn now to North Korea and what the heck has been going on with Kim Jong-un and the leadership in North Korea. And to talk about this with us, we have Gene Lee, who is the director of the Korea Project at the Wilson Center. So glad to have you back, Gene. It's been a little while. Hi, good to talk to you. So what to tell us, I mean, we've, we've heard now over the last, what, three months, uh, Kim Jong-un is dead, he's alive, he's dead, he's alive again, he's dead. What from your watching the country, and I know that it's opaque as it can be, but what, what in your experience can you see here? You were there when Kim Jong-il died and were reporting and, and saw how that crisis went. So what do you, what do you see in here, here with this one? You know, I have to say that I can't think of a time when we've known so little about North Korea than right now. And there are a couple of different reasons for that. It does remind me quite a bit of 2008 when Kim Jong-il suffered a stroke and went into a coma and the whole country went on lockdown mode and journalists couldn't get in. It was very hard for, for aid groups to get in. And this was because they were trying to figure out the succession of leadership in North Korea. Now, I'm not saying that that's happening right now, but North Korea has gone on lockdown and they're using COVID-19 as the reason it's a very good reason, but I think it's more than that. I think they're really trying to get their internal messaging together. And so they're shutting the country out. So many of most of the Western diplomats who were based in Pyongyang have left. So we don't have uh, eyes and ears on the ground. And of course the foreign journalists like me who had been there uh, reporting have left as well and aren't allowed back in. Many of the aid groups haven't been allowed back in the foreign aid groups. And so we have a dearth of information, unlike any period I can think of uh, in years. And so it does make it very difficult to figure out what's going on inside North Korea. And then it does spawn all this speculation. And so this is a very worrying situation for those of us who rely on people on the ground to tell us what's actually happening there, because otherwise all we have is the propaganda. Well, and I know I know from talking to you before that you're you're very good at reading what their state media is saying and getting clues from that. And I know that there's others that do this as well. Is there anything that we can pick up from their state media and how they're 
they're talking right now or is it there are or is COVID-19 really that great of a cover for them? So reading the propaganda, reading their state media intelligently and analytically is incredibly difficult. It took me years to master as a journalist and I still am working on it. Uh, so when you're looking at it for the first time, it's absolutely mind boggling. And so it does take for me living and working there made all the difference. I could I could really sort through fact and fiction. But right now, all we have is fiction coming out of North Korea. And so there are a couple different ways that experts like me try to get accurate information. You know, satellite imagery is absolutely crucial. And so there are some excellent reports that, that look at North Korea from above to try to get a, a clear view or to get a view, I should say, into what's happening. And that's absolutely fascinating research. I do try to take all the propaganda with a huge grain of salt and try to understand what the objectives are so that we know what to take seriously, what not to take seriously. In terms of COVID-19, I think it's hard to imagine that they don't have any cases, right? They claim that they have no cases. I think what's more, regardless of what's happening, I think what's more interesting is how Kim Jong-un is using it as a way to, he's trying to take advantage of it. So he's using it as a way to shut the world out and to control the flow of information and create a different narrative inside the country. He took a huge hit in 2019 when all of this diplomacy with President Trump didn't pan out. And that, after promising and raising hopes, was really hard for his reputation and his, I think, his leadership. And so he's using this time to kind of rebuild his reputation at home. So we're seeing him focus quite a bit on his, his domestic constituents. You know, we've, yeah, he's trying to, to rehab his image here, huh? Yeah, and, and you know, there are other presidents who are doing that as well. They're, they're trying to focus on the messaging at home and building the base at home. Uh, and so that's what I think we're, we're seeing. And so we're going to see a ramping up of, we're going to see this continue until there's a big anniversary coming up in October. This is the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Workers' Party. And it's the 10-year anniversary of his debut. And so he is just trying to get everyone focused on getting the country ready for that big propaganda celebration. Uh, whether or not the North Koreans will open up after that, I don't know. But in the meantime, I think all resources, all efforts are going toward that. And that is really just a propaganda event to boost his standing. So I mean, if he doesn't show up to that, then we know something's up. He will show up to that. I mean, I do think that there are a lot of questions about his health and it's understandable. His uh, father and his grandfather had heart ailments. They died of heart attacks. So uh, it's not, you know, when you look at family history of that kind of uh, a disease, he's, he's a ripe target for that kind of illness. And so we always have that question. Is he also, is it his time as well? So it's not, uh, it's, it's definitely a valid question, but I think, you know, with his so-called disappearances, I wasn't, I wasn't too alarmed the first time. I wasn't too alarmed with the second round of reports. But I am always mindful that there's that possibility because of his uh, health. And there's certain markers we look for, and we didn't quite have those. So I think it's just we've got all this speculation and the rumor mill going haywire because we just have no information. And so with a void of information, we get a lot of speculation yeah. and very little way to confirm it. Yeah, there's an information vacuum that's going to be filled. And so he 
has made some strategic appearances. I mean, you know, he's watching what's happening and he's made some strategic appearances to let people know he's alive and well. And so we will see him. We saw him pop up uh, at a fertilizer factory after the first round of rumors about his death. And then we saw him pop up again. Uh, in a sense, it feels to us like he's trying to quell those rumors. Uh, so, you know, as far as we can tell, he is alive. Whether or not he's well, I don't know. But he's, mm. I do expect him to be out there on Kim Il-sung Square on October 10th saluting the troops as they go by. Yes, I guess we'll be watching uh, a North Korea parade to see, see what he looks like when uh, October 10th rolls around. Absolutely. That might be our, our only chance. I think they will have live footage. And unfortunately, the country's been so closed off that we'll, all we'll have is this extremely staged, managed uh, appearance. Well, Gene Lee, always keeping an eye on North Korea. I appreciate you always being willing to come on the show for us. Thank you. Joining me again so we can turn to what's going on in Japan with the resignation of a prime minister is Shihoko Goto of our Asia program. Welcome back to the podcast. It's really good to be here again. And I know we'll, we're recording this in the middle of a thunderstorm on both sides here. So if we hear thunder in the background, that's what's what's going on. The heavens are uh, crying because Abe resigned. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's just dripping with all kinds of symbolism. So (laughs) tell us, what is going on with the resignation of Prime Minister Abe and what that means for United States relations? Because uh, he's really had a great relationship with the United States. Yeah. So this resignation was not expected. Abe had reached a milestone um, that of being Japan's longest serving prime minister only a few days before he announced he would resign because of health reasons. So now there's this mad scramble within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party to find his successor. And Japan being a parliamentary democracy, um, whoever succeeds uh, has to come from his party. What is interesting is that when his obvious support had actually been been in steady decline, 2020 has been a really hard year for all countries and for all world leaders. Japan is no exception. And Japan also, in addition to dealing with Corona, it's also had to deal with the uh, postponement of the Olympics, which was supposed to be one of the highlights of Abe's achievements for this year. So that's all been pushed back, and he's been grappling with all of this. Um, So what he achieved during his eight years, almost eight years as prime minister, is that of stability. Not just for Japan, but also for the world. For Japan, it finally led to a stable uh, government that was led by a guy who had vision an identity and a purpose for Japan. And even if you didn't agree with his policies, and many people didn't, you couldn't disagree with the fact that he had drive and he had ambition for the country. Um, Looking forward, um, how does this impact U.S.-Japan relations? Abe has been a very realist type of leader. So he knew that he needed to be on Trump's good side. 
because Japan remains so much under the U.S. security umbrella at a time when there's a highly militaristic China and great uncertainty regarding North Korea. You needed to keep America on your side. So that's what Trump did. I'm sorry, that's what Abe did vis-a-vis -vis Trump. And not all global leaders have been able to do that, but, but Abe has, you know, to the extent that one can be in good, on good terms with Trump, Abe has succeeded. Can his successor continue that type of approach? Now, that's going to be a very difficult question. So if you... When you talk about ambition, when you talk about stability, what does that really mean in the Japanese context? When you have a, you know, a, a country that, like you said, is very much under the U.S. security umbrella, what does that mean economically, militarily, to be stable? Right. So what's interesting is that, on the one hand, Japan remains very dependent on the United States for security purposes. But when it comes to economics and, and trade relations, China is its biggest partner. So it has this very difficult balancing act. On the one hand, it has to be on the good side of Washington, but on the other hand, it cannot afford to push back too much against China, even though the China threat is a very real one. Um, again, I'd say that Abe has been a realist because he has been uh, able to balance these two needs. And as he reached out to Trump, he has actually improved relations between Japan and China as well. And were it not for the COVID outbreak, Xi Jinping and Abe would have actually met in Tokyo earlier this year uh, for the first bilateral meeting. So that was great progress. Um, it's going to be difficult for the new leader to be able to establish that kind of rapport um, and trust with the two big powers of the world. Hmm. And who's waiting in the wings after Abe? Well, the money's on the current cabinet secretary, Suga. But the other candidates, too, again, this is um, party politics. Um, the other candidates, too, are all um, established political figures who have a lot of experience um, in ministerial roles and not simply in elected office. So you are going to have someone who has, who knows what he is doing, and it, it will be a he. Um, the question, though, is uh, to what extent that person is going to be able to carry forward some of the uh, policies that Abe has been driving forward. So what Abe has done is to say, okay, Japan's in this situation where it has to be on good terms with both China and the United States, but at the same time, it has to carve out its own identity. Um, and he's been able to do that because he has been in power for so long, and he's been particularly successful, I think, um, or has been able to make a mark on foreign policy. Uh, but Whoever succeeds him needs to have internal support. And, and because this is not through an election process um, with the general voting public, it's going to be very difficult for him to hang on to power. There's going to be a call for uh, an election eventually um, by next year. 
and he will have to really hunker down and focus on domestic politics, which really takes his eyes off the foreign policy issues at a time when there's so much change, right? America is going to have an election. Uh, Angela Merkel is going to be leaving. Um, we, we have a lot of problems in France. Um, who knows what's happening with Boris Johnson and Brexit? So all of these um, major industrialized countries have issues when it comes to leadership. And we had expected Abe to be an anchor of stability in international relations, and he's out too. So as somebody who's watching Japan, and like you just said, we expected this sort of anchor of stability that is now going to be gone. Do you really see the future of Japan's foreign relations really to be uncertain as, as you look out on the horizon, new U.S. election, new Japanese elections, new prime minister coming in? I expect Abe's successor to want to continue what Abe has been trying to achieve. So during the eight years, what did Abe want to do? He wanted to um, enhance Japan's own um, military capabilities. He wanted to revise the pacifist constitution so that Japan could play a more offensive uh, role and not simply have defensive capabilities. He wanted to promote Japan as a, a strong supporter of multilateralism not just on the trade front, but also when it comes to issues like um, environment and um, data protection. So he really wanted to, to do these things. Um, and the successor, presumably, will also want to push those agenda items forward too. But again, um, you need domestic support, um, broader uh, voter support as well, and that's going to be lacking for a while. Okay. Well, always wonderful to have you on with us, Shihoko, and I'm glad that we were both able to, to get through this rainstorm without losing each other. So I appreciate uh, you letting us know what's going on, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back as as these things progress. That would be great. Thank you. We're going to take a look at what's going on in Russia and other places in Eastern Europe right now with Regina Smith, who is a Wilson Center fellow and also pro professor of political science at Indiana University. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast. Thanks, Aaron, and thanks for talking to me today. Well, this is, uh, I didn't want to have a Soviet Union-sized hole in this episode because there's so much going on between uh, a opposition leader uh, apparently being poisoned. You've got protests in the far east of Russia, protests in, in Belarus. What's going on? What, what kind of give us the lay of the land here of how this is affecting the, the opposition situation there? Sure. Well, first, let me say that I think we can take uh, alleged poisoning out of the front of what happened to Navalny. I think there's fairly good evidence now from the Germans that the Russians used the Novichok uh, nerve agent uh, to poison him while he was on a campaign trip in um, Novosibirsk last, uh, what, two weeks ago now. Um, you know, Russians are fond of talking about long, hot summers, and there's been quite some opposition in Russia over the past couple of summers. Uh, this year, the opposition has spanned the Far East in Khabarovsk, where the regime went in and arrested the sitting governor, the very popular sitting governor, uh, Fergal, 
and whisked him away to Russia to uh, try him, uh, to Moscow to try him in Moscow. And this has sparked ongoing prote protest over the last six weeks uh, in calling for the return of Fergal, a free trial in his region, and also uh, free and fair elections in September. Now, what's interesting about that is that the data that we're seeing about the way Russians are responding to the protests in the Far East are very similar to the way that Russians uh, perceived protests in 2011, 2012. They might not be ready to go out onto the street, but they're really glad that people are giving voice to these general concerns that the regime isn't responsive to citizens, that it's increasingly authoritarian and restricts choice, and so forth and so on. And that's complemented by uh, the perceptions of what's happening in Belarus, where a clearly controlled election in which opposition leaders were eliminated from the ballot or not allowed to go to the ballot, either through arrest or exile. Um, and then one of the wives of those opposition leaders stepped in and took the mantle for uh, the opposition vote, and the regime let her on the ballot because they thought she was a weak candidate. And what we saw was that she was became the symbol of coordination. So voters decided they were gonna send uh, President Lukashenko uh, a sign, and they coordinated around voting for her. We see lots of quotes in the newspaper saying everyone on our factory floor voted for her. How can it be that Lukashenko won 80% of the vote? And as a result, there have been massive national protests uh, that have spanned all sectors of the economy. It's a cross-class coalition, it's a cross-age coalition, and it doesn't show any sign of letting up, even as Putin threatens to uh, intervene, and even as Lukashenko uses security forces to uh, suppress dissent. What is Navalny's significance to the opposition in Russia? Navalny's power and his role in Russia really has been his capacity to disrupt political campaigns at every level and across the Republic, the Federation, by introducing this sort of grassroots, online, offline activist campaign that links protest and elections around popular candidates. And that's what Navalny was doing when he was in Novosibirsk. And that's facilitated by this very successful uh, internet tool that he's built with his team called SmartVote, where the team, uh, since the regime now really keeps almost every uh, potentially oppositionist candidate off the ballot in most uh, contests. Smart vote allows Navalny's team to go in and say, of all the candidates, this is the most sympathetic. So you should vote strategically for this candidate and express in doing so, get a better option than a United Russia candidate and also express your opposition to the regime. Explain a little bit about how the opposition really functions in this area of the world, particularly in Russia. 
the Soviet way of dealing with with opposition leaders, they would, you know, put them in a gulag or something, right? But in Russia, we have this constant revolving door of people going into prison, coming out of prison, and always being there, but it's like their lives can just be uh, disrupted at any moment, but yet they're still allowed to function within society. They're not removed entirely. Right. So, um, you know, many people in Russia believe that Russia is a democracy because they have elections. And up until very recently, the the candidates and parties that were supported by a lot of the people, Putin, his party, United Russia, local governors, they actually win. And so that's sort of a very minimalist definition of democracy. What the opposition tries to do is challenge that view and show that no one's actually winning anything, that the management system is very, very rigged, and that uh, the regime is simply replicating power in, in these contests. So that's been its focus. To do that, Navalny's team has built a national organization that's uh, present in almost all of the regions of the uh, the Federation, and is linked together with local protest movements, right? So we see these local movements around trash collection, around the building of churches, around civil society development in general, infill, all of these local issues have organizations around them. And when you layer on top of that, the political organizations, you get Uh, networks within the regions that can collaborate together. So these aren't huge or well-organized units, as we might expect when we talk about organized opposition, but they're small, but they're tight. They're based on networks. They're funded through crowdsourcing, and they look for all the world as if they are weak, And yet the ideas that they're selling, which are not revolutionary, but evolutionary, competition, voice, government responsiveness, um, are very appealing. And so that's the way it works. Now, how does the regime control them? Yes, increasingly, they're willing to uh, arrest people for protest, arrest people for picketing, even, actions that are nominally uh, legal. The regime has built up a huge mass of legislation, which is very vague and can be applied sort of indiscriminately against uh, speech that is not patriotic or speech that hurts the sensibilities of uh, specific groups like the Orthodox Church. And we see the regime increasingly deploying these tools. In between sitting in jail, Navalny's organizations are often harassed by the tax police, by the FSB investigating financial malfeasance, or just really local police coming in and checking to see that they're in compliance with this overlapping regulation, which is designed to disrupt. So the regime has not only built these tools to control elections, but also tools to control and dissuade opposition. Right. So instead of just having somebody disappear, uh, it's just, it's very clear that if you're part of the opposition, your life 
is going to is going to be disrupted multiple times as they as they come in and, and they have multiple ways of trying to get at you. So really, if you're in the opposition, you're you're a very determined person. Yes. So one thing that you that I like to stress when we talk about what will happen next with Navalny is that the opposition is um, extraordinarily committed and it's a group of very talented young people who have worked together now for quite a long time since the 2011-2012 protests that are willing to work across organizations when they see opportunities and who are unlikely to disappear because Navalny has been attacked. And if you're a U.S. policymaker, what are you really watching out for when you're looking at these situations in Belarus and in Russia? Well, I think they're slightly different at this moment because they're at different stages of opposition. In Belarus, I'm looking to see when we start to see elite defection. So two of the candidates who were on the ballot or tried to be on the ballot in the presidential election and are now part of the coordinating committee were uh, insiders to the regime who defected and then were running against the regime. I find it unlikely that they did that without signals from others in the regime that they would join them if they were successful. And so I'm looking to see how long elites stay loyal to Lukashenko. We're also looking to see what Putin actually does. There's a lot of talk. Uh, yesterday, there was uh, Prime Minister Mishustin was in Belarus meeting with Lukashenko, trying to show the unity between uh, Belarus and Russia. By the way, Lukashenko contributed to disinformation by opining that he was absolutely sure that Russia hadn't poisoned Navalny, that it was a plot from outside. So that's what I'm looking for in looking at in Belarus. In Russia, I think the outcome of the, the, the September 13 elections, whether or not we see uh, citizens responding either by using Navalny's smart vote app and voting against the regime's candidates or preferred candidates, or whether we see very, very low turnout because people are just rejecting elections as anything but a performance. Um, I think those are really important. I think also we're gonna look for the signs of state interference in the elections, whether or not workplaces are being used for turnout, whether or not we have the evidence of falsification in these elections, uh, evidence of these really rudimentary tools like carousel voting where they put groups of people on a bus and take them around to different precincts to vote. So, um, so that's, that's what I'm going to look for in the elections. And then I think we all need to keep a close eye on the polls and be thinking about uh, the growing dissatisfaction, the growing awareness of the true nature of the regime and the growing dissatisfaction with the regime. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. I think that there's a lot of people who are aware of these opposition issues. Uh, but it is a if you're an American, it really is a different world to try to understand how these oppositions function within those systems. So thank you for coming on and helping us out with that. Yeah, super, super glad to talk to you. And um, thank you for the podcast, which I use in my teaching. 
that is very gratifying to hear. I, I really, I, you, you told you told me before that you put it in your syllabus, and I hope we can get others to do that as well. Thank you. Yeah, especially in this time of COVID, this remote teaching, the, the students really appreciated alternative voices. And we'll turn now to China, which, you know, with an election season going on, we, we're hearing a lot about it, uh, coronavirus and everything else, trade issues. China has just been in the news for several years now and will probably only continue to increase. So frequent guest here, Robert Daly from the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center is back with us to help explain how we should think about China here going forward as we get into the election. Welcome back, Robert. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be with you. So we, we're hearing a lot here about uh, the administration wanting to take actions on China. Is this really just a an election year uh, move to, to show that he's got some influence in the foreign affairs arena? Or is there something else going on here? I don't think it's just an election year ploy, but it's getting a, a special amount of attention and there's a volume and frequency that are part of the election effort. Uh, Some of President Trump's campaign officials have told corporations and other stakeholders to expect some punitive action against China or Chinese companies every three to four days all summer until election day. And that can take the form of executive orders, statements, various kinds of regulations, new sanctions. And the administration has largely held to that. they're keeping a high flame under China. You know, this year the, the Republicans at the uh, convention actually uh, have not published a platform and said they've rerun their 2016 platform, but they have published sort of an agenda with 10 major bulleted items of which China is number three. So they're putting that front and center geostrategically and there has been a series of coordinated speeches to present China, you know, as a bad player and a major threat that have come, you know, every few weeks. We heard from the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, then the FBI Director, Christopher Wray, Attorney General Barr, and then lastly, Secretary of State Pompeo. So this is a coordinated part of the campaign. But when I say that, I don't mean to imply that it is merely cynical and that they're not serious. I think it is both political and for the Trump administration, principled. So if they're rolling out something every few days, what do you expect for China to come back with? Because they get a move too. I mean, are are, are treasuries in jeopardy because of these moves? Or, or is China going to... Treasuries know? are not in jeopardy yet. China has been uh, both you know, wrong-footed by this, but they also learn pretty quickly. And so they haven't responded in kind to every single announcement. There has been a barrage of them. You know, we closed their consulate in Houston. That one they thought they had to respond to. They closed our Chengdu consulate. We just announced further restrictions on Chinese diplomats in the United States. We're going after, you know, TikTok, Huawei, WeChat, and sanctioning China or ratcheting up pressure for China's actions in Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang, And then especially, and this one is, is I think, probably most concerning to China, Taiwan, uh, where last week the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific, uh, David Stilwell, announced a sort of a new, more active interpretation of U.S.-Taiwan relations under the One China policy. And that's been 
seized upon. Richard Haas, who's a Democrat, just wrote a long piece in Foreign Affairs about ending strategic ambiguity and making clear that we will defend Taiwan. George Will has a column on this this morning. So in some cases, China has struck back, and in some, they're keeping their powder dry, I think, waiting to see what sticks after the election. But you mentioned selling treasuries. Uh, there's another, uh, perhaps more important move in the short term, which is that China and other nations have been convinced that they need to develop a, an alternate international payment system, an alternative to the American-led SWIFT and CHIPS systems, because China, like Russia and other countries, uh, don't want the United States to be able to leverage the international status of the dollar to impose secondary sanctions through these payment systems on Chinese officials and Chinese banks. And so if indeed China with other countries builds an alternate payment system, that is going to weaken the power of the American dollar and American global financial influence. Uh, and it will have takers in the international arena. And it's when we have really separate systems, a separate payment system or separate 5G and technological systems that other countries have to choose between mutually exclusive systems and we truly decouple and truly move toward a Cold War style spheres of influence situation. And so, yes, that this is the kind of thing that China is looking at. Yeah, and I think that's important because you know, we, we hear a lot about, are we in a Cold War with China? But really, if you look historically at the Cold War situation, you had what you were talking about, two separate systems that people have to, had to choose. And we just do not have that situation right now. You mentioned that the the Chinese were caught wrong-footed uh, by this. And I'm thinking back to the trade moves, which we discussed on this podcast. Gosh, I mean, it's it's been a year now. Right. Um, and really, it seems like they were caught off guard by that, too. Never has an administration really gone after the Chinese trade situation like this one. Um, and is there, is there a chance or do you see the administration actually, I, I guess, making some change that would benefit, you know, by constantly drawing attention to these issues every few days? Well, I think that the, the, clearly the play here is political. You know, Americans vote on election day for the most part based on their perceptions of their own safety, Right. And this is where the old saying, you know, vote your wallet comes from. On election day, you look at your wallet. If there's money, you vote for the incumbent. If you feel like there's not, which means that you feel unsafe, you vote for the challenger. So safety, I think, is the issue this year. And there are four kinds of safety that have come to the fore. First, obviously, is, is COVID and the pandemic, how safe do Americans feel. Uh, close second, uh, but perhaps, perhaps tied for first with COVID, is economic security, how economically secure do Americans feel during a recession? Then there's a, a third issue of safety, which is the issue around the ongoing uh, protests throughout the United States in Kenosha and Portland and, and, and other places around the Black Lives Matter movement. And this obviously is two different kinds of issues. You've got some groups of Americans who feel unsafe because they feel targeted by law enforcement and other groups of Americans who may feel unsafe because of the protests themselves. Um, and it seems to me that the fourth form of safety, geostrategic safety, the China threat, 
does come forth in this, in this arena when we look at what Americans are going to vote on the basis of. It is about safety, but I don't think many Americans will be voting because they feel threatened by China. Their votes will be based on how threatened they feel by the pandemic, by their economic situations, and by unrest in American cities. So while they're keeping up a drumbeat on China, uh, I don't think it's going to be a primary factor in the decision-making of most American voters who tend to put international affairs a, you know, a distant third when they think of which candidate to support. Well, there's so many China issues going on here. Is there anything else that a policymaker really should be watching out for as we head into the fall here? Yes, they should distinguish between rhetoric and facts, because this is what the Chinese themselves do. You know, you mentioned the trade deficit. And of course, this was in the 2016 election, you know, what President Trump, one of the major pillars that he ran on, China is taking our jobs, they're raping our country. This is the greatest ongoing ripoff uh, in the United States. Here's a fact. The trade deficit with China is larger today than it was then or at almost any point since. So despite all of that, and despite the trade war and the threats and the sanctions, our trade deficit with China is at nearly an all-time high, and it's higher than when Trump was running in 2016. This you may notice that with all of the anti-China rhetoric from the administration, you've heard almost nothing about the trade deficit, right? So China will be watching the bottom line numbers and what actually happens and not just listening to the rhetoric. And I recommend that our policymakers, too, look at the numbers and what is really happening in U.S.-China relations and not just at uh, the accusations back and forth, um, which are ongoing. Always a fun discussion with you, Robert. Thank you again for joining us yet again to explain what's going on with China. Glad, glad to be with you. Well, we hope that was useful for you to get a What Did I Miss from Over the Summer episode. Special thanks go to our guests, Marissa Kerma, Jean Lee, Shihoko Goto, Regina Smith, and Robert Daly. Thank you so much for joining us yet again. And this is the Need to Know Podcast. We'll see you next time.